Congratulations. Calvary Satterton, Quakertown, those of you online, those of you that watch the service sometime during the week, congratulations. You made it. 13 weeks of Revelation. This morning we complete our series. I hope we don't complete, or you don't complete your reading and thinking about Revelation, but we're going to finish that series this morning, and we're going to look at the last couple of chapters of Revelation where we see God restoring all that was broken. And uh, in case you're wondering how that fits, we've created something a few years ago called The Story. And what we did is try to take the Bible and put it into six acts so that we can keep an idea of where we are in the story and where we're reading in the story. Well, this morning, we come to the last of the six acts. The acts go like this. God creates, God is rejected, God promises, God appears, that's Christmas, God sends, that's the act we're in now, and then God restores, that's the last act, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Well, um, in order to get started, for the last time, let me remind you of our, of our goals, and I'll do it quickly. What, part of the reason that we're working through Revelation, not in detail, but why we're flying over it at 30,000 feet, is we want to remove a little bit of the mystery and a little bit of the fear from the book. Lots of people are either obsessed with the book and they never read anything else or think about anything else, or they're afraid of the book and they never read Revelation. And so we wanted to remove a little bit of that by emphasizing the main themes. You've probably discovered over the past number of weeks, there are lots of debates and lots of arguments and lots of disagreements among people that read Revelation, but they, everybody agrees on the main themes. We've been trying to emphasize those diving a little bit into some of the disagreements, but emphasizing the main themes. Not so we can fill our minds with the themes, but so we can live the themes. The Bible's a book on discipleship. Revelation's a book about discipleship written to Christians living in a culture that's contrary to what the gospel calls us to. Just like us, we live in a culture that has different values, different priorities, the current's heading in a different direction, how do you live in a countercultural way as you follow Jesus? That's what Revelation's about. And so we want to live the themes, not just know the themes. And a fancy way of saying the last thing is, our last goal was to increase our hermeneutical humility. And what that means is not becoming so attached to your interpretation of the details that you then look down your nose or you begin to critique brothers and sisters who may hold a different opinion. So those are our basic goals. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at God restores. And as we do that, let me remind you of where we are in the book. We've got a basic outline. And by now, you should have memorized a whole lot of this. Here's how the outline basically goes. Chapter one gives us the author, small a, John, and the author, capital A, Jesus. Jesus is going to dictate to John seven letters to the churches, and those seven letters went to each of the churches. The letters were not just intended one, one here and one there. The book was written to the churches. Then in chapters two and three, we have the letters. Chapters four and five kind of provide the center of the book and the centering vision of the book. And here's what I mean by that. You need to keep coming back to chapters four and five if you're going to understand everything that flows from it. Four and five, we get a, an image, a vision of the throne room. 
Jesus the Lamb comes and takes the scroll from the hand of the one on the throne and then begins to unroll the scroll, unroll God's victory, unroll God's plan, which occurs through the rest of the book. In 6 through 19, that's those vic- that victory, that judgment being unrolled. In chapter 20, we have the millennium. We'll briefly look at that this morning. And then in 21 and 22, we have the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to do that too. So this morning we're doing millennium, new heavens and new earth. We don't need our whole 30 minutes, right? Doing less than that. Well, some of you are wondering, um, are you going to mention the, the approaches again? Well, I am going to mention the approaches again. And here's what I'm going to say. We looked at four approaches, and I'm not sure if you realize this or not. There are people in this auditorium that hold to each of those four approaches. Not one, one person can't hold all four, but there are people in our community, in our family, that hold to each of the approaches. And so we're not looking at one's right and wrong. They're different. And one of the things I've been trying to show you is there is biblical reason, biblical data that supports each of the approaches. There are also some weaknesses and problems with each of the approaches. The preterist, they said, preterist just means past. They believe everything predicted in 6 through 19 is past. So most of all of that judgment, all that stuff ended with when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70, or some preterists would say when the Roman Empire fell. So that's all in the past. Then there are historicists who say all of the stuff in 6 through 19 occurs historically between the first and second coming of Jesus. So the the churches then are at different ages that people are going through. Futurists say, no, 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 this stuff hasn't happened yet. Chapter 6 through 19, still in the future. We're waiting for all of this. All that stuff happens in the tribulation and then the millennium, it's future. Idealists or symbolic folks, they say, no, they're really not talking about a time, past, present, or future. This is what has happened through the ages. This is what happens when evil and good fight, when God and all of the forces of evil combat their recurring themes. They recapitulate over and over again. It seems like evil's defeated, but then it rises again. Those are the four views. For those of you that think more in pictures, I created a little graph you saw a number of weeks ago. And since I did the graph, I figured I might as well show you one more time. I didn't want to prepare just for one week. Uh, So here's how the approaches look on my graph. If you don't like it, uh, sorry, hang with me for one minute. Uh, The graph past and future, right? Present would be in the middle. Literal kind of at the bottom, symbolic at the top. So we've created four quadrants, time on the x-axis, symbolic literal on the uh, y-axis. How do the views fit? Here's how they fit. Click. There we go. Notice, here's an interesting thing. Preterist and futurist actually want to interpret the Bible the same way. They're going to emphasize the details, And they're going to line up the details with people, places, and facts in a particular location. The difference is not in how they're viewing the information. The difference is when they think the information is actually going to take place. Preterists do all of that um, detail work, correlation, but it's in the past. Futurists do the same detail work. They're connecting this and this, correlating that and that, but it's all in the future. But they both read very literally. Historicists read it slightly more symbolically. 
And what they do is they're saying, no, between the first and second coming, this stuff's going to happen. We can't take the numbers and dates and the time to mean exactly what it means. This is apocalyptic literature. There's lots of symbolism here, but it's still more on the literal end. Symbolic folks are idealists. They're saying, no, apocalyptic literature is full of symbols. They read Revelation much more like political cartoons, right? Where donkeys and elephants are shaking hands. That does not mean you go to the zoo and you see elephants and uh, donkeys hanging out. That means, no, Democrats and Republicans living in harmony. We know that's not America, but living in harmony, right? And so uh, idealists are going to say, and they're going to say, These things really didn't happen only between the first and second coming. We can read before Christ came and we see the same themes lived out. We had Babel, we have Babylon and Babylon's showing up again in Revelation. So the symbolic folks, the idealists are gonna say, it's throughout time. And a bunch of people have been saying, well, Charles, what do you think? And so here's what I say. (laughs) You can take this one uh, totally uh, as a waste of time. I would say there are strengths in every one of those four positions. And there are some weaknesses in each of the positions. So what I say is, yes, when we come to the scripture, when we come to Revelation, we need to start our reading as preterists. We need to start our reading by saying, this stuff meant something to the original readers. What did they have in it? They were thinking about Rome. They were thinking about the emperors. It meant something then. It seems to say more than that. It gets bigger than that. There are recurring themes. And so I want to say, yeah, I'm going to be a little preterist. If those themes recur, it is going to be through history. And there may be something in the future. And so many, John says in, in his epistles, many antichrists have gone out. Yet they have. That doesn't mean there isn't going to be a last one. So maybe there will be a last one. And But we're not going to know the last one until the last one's over. And so therefore, we can't predict the goal of Revelation is not to draw a little map and then begin to speculate on how this fits with that. No, no, no. Our goal is to live as disciples, trusting God with the future, recognizing that we don't know even the things we don't know or we think we know, we really don't know. So that's what what the views mean. Well, let's jump into the millennium then um, in chapter 20. So we have a couple of verses um, on the millennium, beginning of chapter 20. We're not going to dive into the details. Uh, but if you think we've had disagreements so far, you ain't seen nothing yet. Revelation chapter 20, believe it or not, is the most debated and most disagreed upon chapter in Revelation. Now, the approaches don't necessarily line up with the interpretation in Revelation 20, but there's kind of often connections. So here's how Revelation 20 begins. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding it in his hand and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, Satan, that ancient serpent, all the way back to Genesis, right? That ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. That's Revelation 20. And notice that thousand years, that is actually what millennium means. Milla means thousand, annus, year, millennium, thousand years, right? And so that's, this is the only place in the Bible that millennium is mentioned. And so remember what we say, 
We're going to sink our roots into things that are clearly and regularly taught. Whatever your view is of the millennium, it's not regularly taught. Uh, yeah, it says something here, and we got to understand what it's saying, but there are different views to take it. All right, so here we go. I'm going to walk through uh, the different views. If you like this stuff, that's good. If not, you can check out for a couple of minutes. The four main views. Now, again, these don't line up with the approaches, right? Everybody agrees on what Revelation says. Revelation says... Um, Satan is bound, thrown for a thousand, bound for a thousand years. At the end of a thousand years, he's released. At the end of the, his release, he deceives the nations until eventually he's done away with, thrown into the lake of fire. Everybody agrees with that storyline. What it means is disagreed on. What it says, everybody agrees with, at least if you believe the Bible. But what it means is very different. So here's historic premillennialism. Now, the reason it's called historic is because this is the oldest premillennial view. Now you'll notice in, in historic premillennialism, there's a church age, which we would be living in now. At some point in time, right, they would say the tribulation will begin. And that isn't going to be clearly defined real well. At the end of the tribulation, Christ returns. And so in this view, Christians go through the tribulation. You say, well, I don't like that view. Well, I don't prefer that view either, uh, but there are lots of people. This is the historic premillennial view, right? At the end of the tribulation, Christ returns. Then, Revelation 20, he sets up his earthly kingdom, the millennium. At the end of the millennium, Satan's ultimate defeat and eternity begins. That's historic premillennialism. That is an old view that goes all the way back to the church fathers, not all the church fathers, it was all the way back in history. The view that you're probably more familiar with is the dispensational premillennial view. This view is basically new, not, not new like last week, new like in the 1860s. Up until the middle of the 19th century, nobody really held this view. So in the, in the 1860s, this view comes up. Now you notice it's very similar to historic premillennialism with one big difference. And that big difference is before the tribulation, Jesus takes his church away. He raptures them. So before the tribulation, there is the rapture. At the end of the tribulation, he returns. That's just like historic premillennialism. The big difference is historic premillennialism would say, there's no rapture before the tribulation, we go through it. Um, and in dispensationalism, they would say, nope, you have a rapture, then Christ's return. Now, there's a number of entailments that flow from this, and we could spend weeks and weeks on each one of these. I'm watching my time. Uh, but here's what you have to know. One of the big entailments is this. In historic premillennialism, the church replaces Israel. In dispensational premillennialism, the church and Israel are always separate. And so during the millennium, Jesus is ruling with Jews during a, a historic premillennialism, the church has replaced Israel, all right? So that's one of the entailments. All right, here's another one. Postmillennialism. Now remember, millennial just means thousand years. Postmillennialism says, no, no, no. Christ returns after the millennium. Now you'll notice if historic uh, premillennialism is pessimistic, Things are going to get worse and worse. Postmillennialism is optimistic. You'll notice in the uh, tribulation millennium part, 
the tribulation is shrinking away and getting smaller. And the millennium is getting bigger and bigger. Postmillennialists believe Jesus was bound, or excuse me, Satan was bound at the cross. Now, I mean, he still has some power, right? But he's been bound. Therefore, the gospel is advancing. Things are getting better and better until eventually Jesus will return at the end post-millennium. Got it? One more. Amillennialism, right? Now, am means no, but, but, that, but, but that really is a misnomer. Amillennialists do believe in a millennium, but they would believe it's happening now, right? It is, it is occurring. You notice there's a separation. So it is the millennium now because Jesus is ruling with his people in heaven. On earth, there is tribulation. As Christians die, they go to heaven and enter that rule until Christ returns where there's that resurrection where bodies are joined with souls again and then you have eternity. Four different views. Um, the main point of all of that is not to say you have to pick and choose. The main point of all the views, they all agree on this. Jesus is sovereign. You know what? He didn't tell us in great detail how this is all going to work out. He could have done that if he wanted. We do know he kept things vague. Not so we'll fight, but so we'll hope and we'll trust. And we'll realize that he knows a whole lot better than we know. He knows the details and we don't. Let's love one another in the process as we trust him, follow him, without knowing the details of the end, let's put our faith and trust in him as we move to that ultimate destination. And that brings us to the last two chapters. I was thinking um, earlier this week, it's not coincidental, the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, were before sin and evil. And the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, are after sin and evil. So God creates, and the original intention is brought to fruition when God restores. The restoration in the new heavens and new earth. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read a few verses, and then we're going to kind of look at the new heavens and new earth and come in for a landing, rather than emphasize all the things we fight about. Let's emphasize where we're headed and where we're going to spend a whole lot more time than we have spent here. If you know Christ, this is your future. I'm going to read the last verse of chapter 20 just to show you that, um, that there is a difference. Verse 15 of chapter 20, then I'm going to read the first few verses of 21. At the end of 20, the judgment, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, was thrown into the lake of fire, where the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the dragon have been sent. So will all of those who are allied with him. And then we read of the next destination. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. 
and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. I will be their God, and they will be my children. First few verses of 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are, are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in their city, and they will be his servants and will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no night. There will be no need for, a, for the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord their God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What I'm going to do is just tease out a couple of things that I guess I was thinking of as I read through those passages this week and even the stuff that, that I didn't read but is there. First thing I want to say is the new creation is home, is home. Now, I know that's kind of weird. How in the world can it be home when we haven't been there? Yeah, but let me ask you, what is home to you when you think of it? Here's what home is. Homes where you belong. Homes where everything fits. Homes where everything is kind of organized the way you like it to be. Now, I know over the holidays, you're going to visit friends and you're going to visit family. But you know when you're in somebody else's house, they don't know how to do stuff, right? The clicker should be here. And you go into the closet and nothing fits you. But in your house, stuff fits. In your house, your home. Things fit and you belong. In your house, you don't have to ask where you're going to sit for dinner. You know where your place is. Heaven's home. And if you know Jesus, you've got a place there. And right now, at that table that's being prepared, through Jesus, there's a name tag above your plate that has your name on it. Heaven's a place where you fit and where you belong. Um, I know that's weird if you haven't been there. Heaven's home. Heaven's also awesome. Now, I'm not sure if this drives you nuts, and I don't want to get in trouble with anybody. You ever notice that, I'm not sure if it's an age thing, but younger people, People use hyperbole a lot when they refer to things. That was awesome. No, it was actually average. <laughs> that was epic. No, it was poor. That's what it was, right? This show was incredible. No, it was bear bearable. Um, lots of, but you know what? In thinking about heaven, it's awesome. And whatever hyperbole you want to use, you use it. It's awesome. In some of the verses that I didn't read, the physical places described, 
not to show us, I don't think, you know, what, what the hydro system is and what the actual streets are paved with. I think John's using pictures to describe what he can't describe. And so he says, you know what? In heaven, the streets are paved with gold. The most precious metal we have here, they used to pave the streets up there. It's amazing. But you know, one of the most incredible pictures for me is the gates of the city, right? The walls are jasper, right? Beautiful thing. And they're like 20 feet thick. Can you imagine the light of God refracting through walls that are 20 feet thick that look like diamonds and the gates are made of pearl. But it's specifically said each gate was made from one pearl. How'd you like to eat that oyster pie, right? <laughs> each gate one pearl. Now look, I don't know. Um, you don't want to say this is in the Bible. Uh, this, this is in Charles, which may mean it's really weird and strange. But do you know how pearls are formed? Here's how pearls formed. A piece of sand gets sucked into that bivalve, into that oyster, and that irritant is irritating that oyster so much that the oyster begins to secrete mother of pearl around that irritant. And as time goes on, that valuable, precious mother of pearl is one day taken out of the oyster and the irritant has become valuable and precious. So just maybe, again, not in the Bible, this is Charles, just maybe the gates of the city are there to remind us that we're only there because through Jesus, we irritants have been made precious by his grace and his love. And maybe this is helpful, it's helpful for me. Do you have any irritants in your life these days? Don't look around the room, don't look at anybody. Do you have any irritants in your life? You know what the gospel and what grace does? If you live in grace, those irritants in your life will be covered with grace. And those irritants, not in spite of the irritant, the irritant itself will become valuable and precious as we cover it in grace and the gospel. So just maybe the gates are there for a reminder Irritants are valuable and precious when you add Jesus to the picture. Heaven's home. Heaven's awesome. Right, here's another one. Show me what, oh, heaven's forever new. Um, has this ever happened to you? Have you ever noticed just when things are getting comfortable, they wear out? Right? Just when your genes are the way your body goes, right? You have a weird-shaped body, I know, right? And, but just when they're beginning to fit, when the, when the bumps are in the right places and, they get, and they're just beginning to fit, and then they got a hole in them, your wife throws them out. Just when your shoes are beginning to mold to your feet, they wear out, or you got to take them to the shoemaker, get them redone. Just when things in your house, it, it, do things in your house ever wear out or deteriorate? Don't tell my wife. I keep trying to tell her, our things never deteriorate or get old. Right? But everything's wearing out. You need a new TV. Your house needs to be painted. Everything wears out. Everything's getting worse. Not in the new creation. 
The new creation is, for, is forever new. Your jeans never wear out. Your shoes fit forever. The clicker's always where you want it. Forever new. Nothing gets old. Sin enters the world and things deteriorate. They get worse and worse in the new creation. Things actually get better and better. And so your jeans fit better. Your shoes fit better. Clicker never needs batteries. Forever new. Heaven is also community. We don't read that about hell, though. You ever notice that? You know, every once in a while I hear people say, well, and, and they say sarcastically, and they'll never will say this in eternity, but they, well, I don't want to go to heaven. I'd rather go to hell. I'll be with my friends, drinking along the road. Where do you ever say you're going to be with friends? Where do you read in hell there's going to be light, any light? Are you going to be alone in darkness? Solid? I don't know what it's going to be, but I do know this. Hell is real, awful, and forever. And heaven is real, awesome, and forever. And we know enough about one to not want to be there, and enough about the other one that you want to be there. Heaven's community. We're with people. Um, let me ask you a question. How many of you, be honest, right? We're among friends. How many of you have a bucket list? Raise your hand. Oh, we have a couple. Things you want to do before you die, right? Things you want to do before you kick the bucket. I don't have a bucket list because I'd be anxiously trying to do it. But this past week, I developed my after I kick the bucket list. <laughs> so here's my after I kick the bucket list. Here's stuff I want to do when I get here. Here's what I want to do. I want to watch a video of Genesis 1. And I want to find out what and how, since God didn't answer those questions in the book, I want to know what and how. And I want to listen to Noah talk about that story and how in the world without tools he built that boat. Um, you know, these hands don't work. I'd like to talk to Noah about that. I want to pray with Daniel. That'd be an experience, right? I prayed with some of you in that scripture. I want to pray with Daniel. I want to hear David sing, right? I mean, I read his Psalms, Psalms all the time. I don't, and I'd like to hear him I think today it'll be a guitar. It was like a liar. It, it's a guitar. Maybe it's a lead guitar. I don't know. Just to tick some of you off. It'll be a loud electric guitar David's playing. <laughs> I want to hear Paul preach. It still freaks me out. That guy fell out the window, right? <laughs> I, I want to hear him preach and say, look, I understand you all sleeping if I'm preaching, but Paul, the guy falls asleep on Paul, falls out the window. Um, I want to hear Paul. Um, I want to hang with Peter. You know, we don't know a lot about a lot of the disciples, but I know this, and I hope I don't offend you. I want to have a beer with Peter. I want to sit at the bar and hear some of his stories because my guess is we don't get the best ones in the Bible. He is a fun guy. I want to hear him. I want to hear the testimony of some pastors from Africa who put up with things that we only hear of. I want to talk to some of the martyrs. Say, How in the world did you do that? I want to talk to some young people who put up with peer pressure that we know nothing of and we look down our nose and criticize. I want to chat with marriage partners who, rather than taking the easy way and getting out, they took a hard route and stayed in. And I got a lot of catching up to do. With family and friends that have gone on, you say, well, Charles, your kick the bucket list is going to take a long time. I'm going to have a lot of time. 
It's community. The new creation is also transforming. Do you ever live the reality of Romans 7? Now, you may, here's what Romans 7 says. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, that's the stuff I do. You ever live that? Like, that's like my story, like, every day. You say, Charles, we know. But, but it, I hate that. But it's not going to be my story forever. Because when that translation's made, it's transforming. And we'll be different. Our actions, our words, our motives will all line up. And we won't have that battle inside and that sin outside anymore. But you know what? Heaven's not heaven. It was just those five things. That'd be really cool, right? It's home, it's awesome, it's forever new, it's community. That's awesome, yeah, yeah. That's not heaven yet. You know what makes heaven heaven? Heaven, the new creation, is Christmas. Forever. You know what Christmas is? Emmanuel, we sang that. You know what Emmanuel says? God with us. Did you notice that when I read those verses? God will be with his people forever and ever. Christmas. You know, we love Christmas this time of year, but there's always a little disappointment that comes, not in the real Christmas, not in the ultimate Christmas. The new creation is Christmas forever and ever. I want to end the series and this message by reading the last couple sentences from the last Narnia Chronicle, the last battle. Lewis knew what he wrote. And um, this, is what, this is how he ends Chronicles of Narnia. Think back over 13 weeks. Think back over this lesson and listen to Lewis. The things that had begun to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end. The end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that we will live happily ever after. But for them... It's only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover in the title page. And now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read. And that story goes on forever and ever. Every chapter is better than the one before. And all of that, friends, is for those who know Jesus, not because we try hard, not because we've repented really well, because we've recognized that we're a mess and we need help. And we reached out in our poverty and weakness to a Savior who's taking care of all of our guilt and shame. And he says, why don't you come home? Come home forever to a community, to a place that's awesome, to a place that's Christmas forever and ever. That offer's good for you. 
It's good for everyone you know. But make no mistake, the offer is not forever. One day, the invitation ends. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you not only tell us the beginning, you also tell us the middle and and you tell us the end. And Lord, our minds can't comprehend the end. And yet the things we do know are pretty amazing. So Lord, I pray that when the irritants of life and the disappointments and the brokenheartedness and all that stuff that often consumes us, when those things begin to wear us down, help us to look up. Help us to realize we're not at the end of the story yet. But the end's coming where every chapter will be better than the one before. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.